Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. My name is Michael Bradley, and this is episode 38. This time, we will be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 23, which continues somewhat from the events in issue number 22 and features Superman's first meeting with someone who's going to go on to become a very important figure in his life. Before that, though, regular listeners might remember that I've talked a lot lately about how I felt there was a a change in the tone of the stories. Even though we're still seeing a Superman who is very callous towards the life of criminals, I knew that there was a change coming very soon. I've been researching it more, and apparently I was even more spot-on than I realized, because while the hard stance against Superman, Batman, and other heroes killing criminals is still a few months away, it seems the company was already feeling the heat as early as January 1940. Whitney Ellsworth returned to DC and took over as editor of Action Comics and the other titles once edited by Vince Sullivan in December 1939. Shortly after, in January 1940, he sent a letter to Jerry Siegel saying basically that they were already being pressured by women's groups and parent-teacher organizations that claimed comic books were harmful to children. He indicated in a letter that there was a definite pressure against some of the movie serials, even pointing out Dick Tracy's G-Men, which was released uh, the previous September. And he went on to basically warn Siegel that they need to be wary of violence and whatnot, without sacrificing the excitement and and adventure elements of the story. By most accounts, the strict enforcement of the no-kill policy for Batman came after the Hugo Strange story in Batman No. 1, where Batman kills a a whole mess of people, uh, most of them via a machine gun mounted on the Batplane. One assumes a similar policy was put on Superman as well, so we will see as we get to the Superman stories printed around the time of Batman number one. It would be interesting to know what kind of pressure they were feeling before Ellsworth returned. I wonder if it was already rearing its head and Sullivan just didn't feel it was an issue, or if it just happened to come up around the time Ellsworth returned. It's interesting either way. I'm going to keep looking into it where I can, and I'm sure that it will come up again. Anyone even vaguely familiar with the history of comics knows that the impact of comics on kids isn't a topic that's going to die down anytime soon. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron.
The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. With 64 pages and costing 10 cents, Action Comics number 23 was released sometime around February 22, 1940, making it the first issue of Action Comics released after the debut of the Superman radio show on February 12th. In relation to the newspapers, both the Daily and the Sunday strips were in the middle of storylines that we will be looking at in upcoming episodes, with the Daily storyline being the third part of the uh, Superman at War trilogy the first two parts we looked at in episodes 32 and 36. Our cover is by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and it's a beautiful cover that shows Superman leaping through a moonlit sky on the way to save a woman who is plummeting downward. Like most covers from this era, this is not a scene from the story inside the book, and the woman doesn't look to be Lois Lane, though possibly with a change of hair color she could be. Those things aside, though, I really can't say enough good things about this cover, It's just a very dramatic and and iconic cover. It's also notable for being the first cover to feature the symbol that will become known as the DC Bullet. It's not just the first Superman comic to have the symbol, but the first comic period. More Fun Comics number 54, which was likely released about a week after this comic, also has the bullet, and then beginning with the May cover-dated books, both Detective Comics and Adventure Comics begin sporting the logo as well. It's interesting that the addition of the logo to all of DC titles happened just as the Superman radio show was beginning. I don't have any evidence that one relates to the other, but it's totally plausible to me that given that Superman was their cash cow and how the radio show ends each episode with Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine that Harry Donenfeld or Jack Leibowitz or someone else in the company felt it would be a good idea to start branding all of their titles. But either way, to accommodate room for the logo, they've moved the date on the cover, which in this case is April, down next to the book's logo right above the price. And they've also started listing the cover date just as the month rather than date and year. And I found that a little odd because even the indicia inside the book doesn't have the year. And I would think they would need it at least one place or the other for postal reasons, but I I guess not. At the bottom of the cover, like last issue, we also have a banner touting the book as the world's largest selling comic magazine. And given that reports say they were selling anywhere from 500,000 to a million copies a month at this point, I'd say they definitely deserve the title. Turning inside, our 13-page story was written by Jerry Siegel, signing once more as Jerome Siegel. I'm not quite sure why they keep going back and forth on that. It could be a letterer thing. The lettering in this story is quite different than recent issues, so it might just you know depend on the whim of whoever did the lettering. Either way, our art was by Joe Schuster and Paul Cassidy, and the issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. The story has been titled Europe at War Part 2, and it picks up continued from the events of Action Comics number 22, which we looked at way back in episode 33. There, Daily Star reporters Clark Kent and Lois Lane had been sent to cover a war between the European nations of Tehran and Galonia. It was an adventure with spies, intrigue, a little bit of action, and some mixed-up geography. I'm not going to recap the whole plot. Check out episode 33 if you're interested. 
The down and dirty basics of what you need to know is that Tehran invaded Galonia, and our favorite reporters were sent to cover the war as correspondents. And just as a reminder, though it should be obvious, this story takes place chronologically before all four stories from Superman number four, which Billy Hogan and I looked at last episode. So, as we open here, we are thrown right into things, with our story be- beginning right in the splash page. We find Clark carrying an unconscious Lois racing through the streets of Belgaria, a town in Galonia, trying to evade exploding shells as the town has come under an attack. Getting Lois to safety, Clark transforms to Superman and with a leap launches himself into the air. At the Tehran border, a military official revels in the successfulness of their attack. However, he is, I'm sure, very much surprised as Superman begins catching shell after shell and tossing them back at the invaders, causing the entire bombardment to explode in a ball of fiery destruction. With the attack rebuffed, Superman changes back to Clark, fuming over how much he hates Senseless Death, apparently forgetting that he just killed an entire platoon of soldiers. When Lois revives, he tells her how Superman showed up to stop the attack, and Lois laments how it's just her luck that she once more narrowly missed the Man of Steel of her dreams. Clark and Lois then meet with Galonian General Lupo, who tells them Galonia hopes the war ends soon, and in fact, in a couple of hours, there is to be a ceasefire, and a group of Tehran officials are to come to Bulgaria to negotiate peace. Later, back at his hotel, Clark changes to Superman, and grabbing a camera, he leaps off to get a photo of the Tehranian officials driving into Bulgaria so that it can run with the story. It's a bit interesting to me seeing Clark use his role as Superman to get photos. We don't see Clark doing that too much, and I'm glad, but it very much echoes of Spider-Man. And also, much like Spider-Man, being that this is still early in the story, you know something is going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And as Superman is taking the picture, the car carrying the officials explodes. The murder of the officials infuriates members of the Tehran army and soon the fighting between the two armies renews in earnest. As Superman returns to the hotel, he wonders if Galonia's call for peace was just talk, and after changing back to Clark Kent, he sends a story back to the paper by telegraph, then goes back again to interview General Lupo. Lupo assures Clark that the vehicle's explosion was a mere accident, and that Galonia had nothing to do with it. However, as Clark leaves, his superhearing picks up Lupo making a call to an unknown party. I just got rid of that suspicious reporter. No one will ever guess the truth. Shortly, the general leaves, and Superman trails and watches as the car parks near a mountain. The general walks up the mountain, but suddenly vanishes before Superman can follow. Mystified by what happened to the general, Superman searches for a, for a doorway or an entrance, and when he comes up empty, Superman tears into the mountain, ripping up a huge piece of rock and revealing a secret passageway. Superman quietly makes his way down the passage, and soon sees Lupo standing in front of a large slab of rock. Lupo stares at the rock, hypnotized, as lights swirl and flash. A face then forms on the rock, and a voice booms, Speak! What have you to report? Lupo tells the stone face that the plans of prolonging the war are successful, and as the face fades, Superman confronts Lupo, violently grabbing him and threatening to smash his head against the rocks if he doesn't explain what's going on. Scared out of his wits, Lupo explains that within moments, a squadron of unmarked planes is to attack a nearby country. 
He goes on to say that Luthor's plan is to engulf all of Europe in a bloody war. But who is Luthor? demands Superman. Quivering, Lupo replies, Luthor is... is... But before he can answer, the face rematerializes on the stone slab, and as a voice booms, Die, traitor! Two green rays blast from the stone, striking Lupo and leaving him much less alive than he was before. The face then turns the deadly beams on Superman, but our hero's amazing strength allows him to withstand the onslaught. Annoyed with the whole mess, Superman swings his fist, smashing the slab and causing the entire cavern to cave in, burying Superman alive. Soon, with blow after blow from his mighty muscles, Superman digs his way free of the rocky tomb, only to see a squadron of bombers flying overhead. Superman leaps into the air, charging after the last plane. The narration tells us, as the bomber sights Superman's figure suspended in the empty air before him, the gunner frantically attempts to shoot him down. But the assault has no effect on our hero, as Superman lands atop the plane, grabbing the gunner and tossing him out. Placing himself behind the gun, Superman whirls and begins firing the gun at the other planes, knocking two of them out of the sky. No worry about the pilots, though, as the arc clearly shows them parachuting down. However, the others might not be so lucky, as soon, Superman runs out of ammunition, and that's not something I ever thought I'd have to say on this show. But with the gun empty, Superman climbs out on the wing of the plane, and snags two more planes out of the air with his bare hands, and smashes them together. Superman then climbs back down into the cockpit of the plane, which is still flying at this point despite not having a pilot for quite some time, and having two other planes get smashed together and explode within arm's reach. But he climbs into the cockpit and dives the plane directly at the one remaining bomber, causing both planes to explode in a fiery collision, as Superman leaps free and lands safely on the ground, unharmed. Later, Superman resumes his identity of Clark Kent and goes before the negotiating parties of Galonia and Tehran, and tells them that while he cannot reveal the source of his information, he has learned that a third party is trying to push the two countries into war. However, and unfortunately, no one believes him, and I imagine that, even though he doesn't know it at this point, Clark probably feels a lot like Jor-El did about 30 years prior. Meanwhile, though, at his secret lair, Luthor says the reporter, a.k.a. Clark, knows too much and orders one of his minions to eliminate him. But when the minions show up at Clark's apartment, they only find Lois, whom they abduct and take back to Luthor for questioning. Soon, Lois is captive within a plane and flown to Luthor's lair, which is a large castle on a platform suspended from a dirigible high in the sky. She's brought before Luthor, who demands to know how Clark knew of him. Lois is awestruck at the whole thing. The floating castle, the giant dirigible, the crazy guy with mop hair and a red robe sitting on a giant throne and she says she doesn't know. Luthor thinks that Lois might be lying, but orders her taken away so that he can attend to other matters. While being held prisoner, Lois notices one of the guards acting differently than the others, and deduces that he is not under Luthor's hypnotic spell. She calls him on it, but the guard tells her not to say anything, or Luthor will kill him. Lois then blackmails the guard, saying unless he delivers a note to Clark Kent, she'll expose his lack of mind control to Luthor. Why she just didn't say, hey, get me out of here or I'm going to expose you, I don't know. But regardless, the guard agrees and later that night slips into Clark's hotel and leaves a note. 
As soon as the guard leaves, Clark jumps from his bed and reads the note. Realizing Lois is in trouble, he swiftly changes to Superman and leaps out the window. Superman sees the guard making an escape in an aircraft, and with a mighty leap, rockets straight up into the air, following the craft back to Luthor's dirigible. When Superman lands on the platform, he is attacked by two guards, but easily dispatches them with a punch to each jaw. Superman then uses his X-ray vision to peer inside Luthor's lair, where he sees Lois being tortured. Well, the narration calls it torturing. From the art, it kind of looks like she's just getting an attack from the Tickle Monster. Anyway, not willing to stand for such shenanigans, Superman leaps forward, busting through the wall, grabbing the guard by the throat, and saving the girl reporter. Superman then grabs Lois and starts to leave, but stops short when the ominous face appears on the wall of the castle, and Luthor's voice booms once more, advising Superman not to leave. Superman shows no fear, stepping between Lois and the face, and with a determined stare, replies, I don't fear you. You can't harm me. But despite Superman's defiance, Luthor reminds him that while he may be invulnerable, Lois is not so fortunate demanding that Superman submit to his demands, or Lois will die. Superman cedes to the madman's demands, and allows the guards to take them before Luthor. Superman tries to reassure Lois, but the girl reporter is unafraid, saying with Superman nearby, she has nothing to fear. Before Luthor, Superman demands to know what kind of man Luthor is, and the madman calmly replies, Just an ordinary man but with the brain of a super-genius. With scientific miracles at my fingertips, I'm preparing to make myself supreme master of the world. My plan? To send the nations of the Earth at each other's throats, so that when they are sufficiently weakened, I can step in and assume charge. Luthor's men change Superman to the wall, and soon four green rays fire at our hero, blasting against his powerful form. Luthor is amazed at how Superman is able to withstand the rays, but says soon even he will succumb to the ray's power. And we soon learn that Luthor is correct as Superman begins feeling his strength slowly start to leave. See how I destroy the mighty Superman, Luthor laughs. No one can stand in the path of Luthor. No one! But soon Luthor grows impatient that Superman isn't dying fast enough, so he reaches to increase the concentration of the rays. But before he can do so, Superman busts loose from his chains, grabbing the weapon and turning it on Luthor and his minions. However, Luthor grabs another weapon and fires it full blast at the Man of Steel. Charging through the deadly blast, Superman summons his last bit of strength and with a mighty punch destroys the deadly weapon. Superman grabs Luthor, who begins begging for mercy. Soon, Superman is racing through the halls of the fortress, with Lois on one arm and Luthor under the other. As they reach the dirigible's control room, Luthor orders his army of minions to do away with Superman, but the Man of Steel easily handles the army of goons, and begins tearing through the control room, destroying the mechanism which keeps the dirigible afloat. With Lois in his arms, Superman leaps free of the dirigible, landing safely on the ground, and they watch as the dirigible crashes and ignites into a ball of flame, no doubt killing everyone aboard. Okay, we know Luthor isn't dead but only because we've looked at the next story already. Superman has no way of knowing that, and Lois even remarks, and that's the end of Luthor. Well, I'm sure she didn't say it that campy, but even though Luthor returns, 
his minions don't necessarily. And there were a whole lot of minions that were unconscious, courtesy of Superman, when the dirigible went down. But anyway, with Luthor taken care of, Superman and Lois return to the city. In his hotel, Clark changes back to Superman and goes once more to address the negotiating parties of Galonia and Toran. You've seen the strange dirigible that fell from the sky. Now do you believe my contention that a fiend named Luthor deliberately fomented this war for evil purposes? The council agrees that it does seem likely, and later, as Clark paces nervously, word comes that the two countries have agreed to settle their differences and that the war is over. Back at the offices of the Daily Planet, people marvel over how Clark landed yet another amazing scoop, while back in Europe, Clark and Lois prepare to make their trip back home, and Lois says she'll be happy to get home, especially if it means Superman is there. And the final panel of the last page is an ad for the Sandman in Adventure Comics. It's the same ad that was at the end of the second story from Superman number 4 that Billy and I looked at last episode. But, wow, what, what a fun story and just a great introduction to Luthor. I'm going to maybe go out on a limb and say that this is the best story, or at least the most fun story, that the comics have given us in quite a while. At first glance, it might seem as if my excitement is heightened because it involves Luthor, but I don't think that's it. This Luthor is very unlike the Luthor that's most familiar to me and most readers of today. Even those that grew up reading Silver Age comics, I would say this Luthor is quite different to them. So, even though this is Luthor, it doesn't necessarily feel like Luthor to me. Just like sometimes this doesn't feel like Superman to me, you know? Plus, even though I think it's a safe assumption that Siegel introduced Luthor fully intent on making him a recurring villain, and maybe even the main villain for Superman, there is no way Siegel could have known what the character would evolve into and the position he would ultimately take among Superman's rogues. But our story kicks off throwing us right into the action. The splash page here is the first panel of the story. Those generic splashes are nice to a point, but they get a bit tired in the way they never connect to the story. So right away we are right in the thick of things with Clark and Lois running through a war zone and then Superman leaping dynamically into the air in a a great panel and confronting the attackers. And it didn't stop there. I mean, Siegel didn't waste any time in the story. It just moves right along throughout in a way that keeps you completely invested in the story. When we finally get to Luthor, I I love the whole scene in the cave, you know, from the secret passageway to the giant face coming out of the wall and and the death rays. It's just a great build-up to Luthor. And yes, it's kind of goofy and maybe a bit odd, but it's just fantastically fun. It's a bit amusing to me, though, that after... 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 Cross the Rainbow Bridge of Asgard! (laughs) It's a bit amusing to me, though, that after three Luthor stories, each has involved making his face appear on things. But, like I think I said last episode, at least he's got a shtick. Plus, in this story, the face is huge and menacing, unlike the other two stories where it looked more like a picture of himself. As the story goes on, you know, we have the the giant dirigible and the flying fortress and Lois being held captive and blackmailing the guard to get out and then Superman coming in for the save and the dynamic rescue. It's, It's just all awesome stuff. 
I hit heavily on it when I did the synopsis, but there's that great moment when Superman goes to save Lois. He takes her from the guard, and but before they can leave, Luthor's face materializes on the wall. And we get a great panel where Superman has placed himself between the face and Lois, and his, you know, his stance is broad and heroic, and he's clearly shielding Lois with his body. And he staunchly defies Luthor, saying that he's not afraid. For all my complaints about our hero being very un-Superman-like in these stories, that is very Superman. Even figuring in the two Luthor stories from Superman number 4, which weren't as good as this one, I'm already liking Luthor a lot more than the ultra-humanite. And I liked him quite a bit, even if that character never quite got off the ground like I think it could have. And I'm sure part of that maybe is because it's Luthor and I know what's coming, but this really is just a fun story. Luthor's plan here is smarter than anything the ultra-humanite tried. He wants to take over the world, so instead of making a taxicab racket or relying on faulty subway schemes, he just pushes people in the direction that will eventually lead them to destroy themselves, and then he plans on stepping in and, and picking up the pieces. Even though this feels not quite like the Luthor that we're all most familiar with, that kind of Machiavellian scheme feels very Luthor-like to me, which probably owes a lot to the fact that I grew up reading the post-crisis Lex Luthor, who you know, he, he really excelled in that type of plan. And we even have... I got I got I got a smile with this machine that Luthor uses. It fires green rays that slowly drain Superman's strength. Given the properties and characteristics that will uh, belong to Kryptonite when it's finally introduced, I found that interesting. And don't misunderstand, it's not Kryptonite, but if this story were somehow retconned into modern continuity... I'm sure that it would be rewritten as such. But, of course, as much as I liked this story, there were still some things that weren't so great. First and foremost, we have Superman once more racking up a huge body count. He throws one guy out of an airplane and kills the pilots of three others. He kills everyone in Luthor's fortress, including, like I said, as far as he knows, Luthor himself. Now, we all know that Luthor's not dead, well, not only because we have the history of uh, the perspective of history, but we've already looked at the next two chronological appearances of Luthor. But Superman doesn't know that, and he certainly didn't do anything to attempt to prevent Luthor's death. Instead, by destroying the dirigible, you could say that he caused it. And I note too, on a kind of similar uh, train of thought, I note too that there's no mention in either story from Superman number four that Superman believed Luthor was dead. And we had no comments from Luthor about how he survived the crash here. It makes me wonder if we'll get an explanation in the next Luthor story that we look at concerning how he survived being mauled to death by his beasts at the end of that second story from Superman number 4. I'm not holding my breath on it, and I sometimes wonder if I should even consider that a black mark against the stories at all, I mean, this is clearly a different time and a different approach to telling stories. But, on the other hand, it's one person writing all these stories. And if you're going to apparently kill off a character, I at least give us a line about how he survived. I don't need a big convoluted explanation. You know, just a throwaway line. Uh, we got one in the second Ultra Humanite story, and I'd like to see that more with Luthor, too. 
It's not a huge issue, but I'd just like to see more of it. Of course, this story also leaves us with many of the same problems that came up last issue, as none of those are really explained. I guess you could presume Luthor was behind the attempt on Lita Laverne's life, as well as the attack on her home, but that still leaves the issue of not only did Tehran invade Galonia at the beginning of the story, but later Lita and the military officials were conspiring to destroy the Calcutta. And I guess you could presume that Luthor had moles in the Turanian High Council, and maybe, just maybe, Lita was working for him too, but the question comes back about why two attempts were made on Lita's life, and two, in this issue, when the Turanian officials are killed, they accuse Galonia of, quote, more treachery. But it was clearly Tehran that was the invading country, or the aggressor nation, as they're fond of calling it, in last issue. So, any explanation you put together only causes more questions or requires far too many presumptions on the part of us, the reader. So, I'm just going to go with total fail on that aspect of the story from last issue. The world will simply never know. One last story-related thing that I wanted to make note of, and that is, last issue, Action Comics number 22, Clark and Lois were employees of the Daily Star, when Billy and I looked at Superman number 4 last episode, we noted that they were, for the first time in the comics, employees of the Daily Planet. And here, in Action Comics number 23, despite it picking up directly from the events in Action Comics number 22, we find Clark sending his story back to the Daily Planet. Like with the Daily and Sunday newspaper strip, no explanation is given in story for the change. Even though, also like the Sunday version... It happened mid-story. If this or Superman number 4 was your very first Superman comic book, you would have no idea that the paper had ever been anything different. In addition to the story, the art in this issue is pretty outstanding too. As I mentioned, the second panel of the story, well, both panels that kick off the story actually, are just fantastic. The first shows Clark running with Lois in his arms, and then we get a shot of Superman just launching himself into the air. We get another similar panel later, when Superman follows the airship back to Luthor's dirigible. It's a little different angle and not as dramatic, but it's, it's awesome seeing Superman fly through the air like a missile, even though he's not technically flying in the comics yet. But there's other greatness that I've talked about. You know, we had the giant face, and Superman shielding Lois, and... There's the crash of the planes and the dirigible. Just a lot of great stuff. A big step up from the last few stories. There are a few places that are kind of sketchy, especially at the end, and a few panels that could use you know, more background detail. But still, it's an improvement. Definitely check out the show notes at greatcrypton.com to see the panels that I put up from this story, because if you've been disappointed with the art from the last few, I think you'll, you'll like the art in this one. There's also a huge difference in the lettering this issue, with it it's bigger and bolder. I'm not sure if Cassidy lettered this himself or what, but it's it's closer to the style of lettering that we're going to get on a pretty regular basis pretty soon. There's also several places these uh, crudely drawn arrows indicating to which panel the reader is to go next. I'm not sure what the purpose of them is, since we're still using the strict 8-panel grid on most pages, Still, it's a new little artistic flair or technique, 
And we'll be seeing more of these types of different techniques and approaches as we go on, obviously, you know, as the medium grows and, and more artists start working on the strip. All in all, though, just a, just a great story. Even though they could have no way of knowing at the time that Luthor would become the most famous of all Superman villains, it really feels like they came out with both guns blazing on this story, and I'm really glad they did. As this is the first chronological appearance of Luthor, and the best of the three Luthor stories from this first month, there have been four reprints for this story. Superman, the Action Comics Archives, Volume 2, Superman in the 40s, trade paperback, Superman Chronicles, Volume 3, and Superman vs. Lex Luthor, trade paperback. That last one is a trade that came out in 2006, uh, I believe shortly before Superman Returns hit the theaters. And it contains a lot of classic Superman Lex Luthor stories. Only two of them are from the Golden Age, this one and the one from Superman number 90, which is very, very late Golden Age. But it also contains How Luthor Met Superboy, the Jerry Siegel story that relates how Luthor went bald and, and why he hates Superman, or Superboy as it is in the story. And it's got a couple of excellent Bronze Age stories, including Luthor Unleashed by Carrie Bates and The Einstein Connection by Elliot S. Magan. And it also contains Metropolis, 900 Miles by John Byrne, which is a short but classic post-crisis Luthor story. I don't own this trade because I have almost all the stories either from the original issues or in other trades, but if you are a new collector or a new reader and want a great sampling of Lex Luthor stories from throughout the years, definitely check that out. How do you kill a man without fear? Hi everyone, I'm Johnny Freiburg. And I'm Tyler Crow. And we are from Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. And we are here to bring you a comprehensive view of Marvel's Man Without Fear. Without that panty, Black Panther. As we cover every issue of Daredevil from the beginning. Starting with the 1960 series with... Tyler, why are you talking like that? Because we're a dark and gritty podcast. But Daredevil is actually a pretty lighthearted book in the beginning. I, I, I mean, it was? Yeah, so join along for all the fun and adventures of Silver Age Daredevil. With irony and Karen Page galore. At From Yellow to Red, a Daredevil podcast. Without 
Other features in this issue include Pet Morgan, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara. We also have the debut of a new strip replacing the departing Chuck Dawson, and that is The Black Pirate. The Black Pirate is John Valor, a 16th century privateer who fights crime and injustice on the high seas. The strip is illustrated by Sheldon Maldoff, but the writer is unknown. As far as I know, The Black Pirate has nothing to do with the 1926 film of the same name, which starred Douglas Fairbanks. But if I'm wrong about that, I hope someone will let me know. With The Black Pirate coming aboard... (laughs) Coming aboard... Uh, This is actually going to be our lineup in the book until almost the middle of 1941, so get used to it. This issue also has the Big Six ad that we talked about a couple times, as well as the full-page color ad for Superman number 4, now on sale at all newsstands. As well, we have our first Action Comics Monthly book review, looking at Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. And it's interesting that they would choose that book, the same issue that The Black Pirate begins. But despite the name, it's not so much a review of Treasure Island, but rather an excerpt of the book. But still, the purpose of these reviews is to encourage kids to read, so putting in an excerpt of the book would probably serve that purpose more anyway. I really like how comic books in this era encouraged kids to better themselves, whether it be by exercising, eating right, or reading. People view it as silly and quaint these days, but it's better than just providing the the mindless entertainment. Also in this book, last but not least, we have our eighth Superman of America page. In the message from Superman, he again talks about the flood of entries that they received in the essay contest, saying that it's certainly gratifying to see such a response. He then uh, says again that the judges are hard at work at looking at the entries and that the uh, winner will be announced soon. He goes on to talk about the three ideals on which the club is founded, strength, courage, and justice. He explains how each one, when taken independently, can be good, but not necessarily useful. You know, they're all fine on their own, but they need to work together to accomplish the highest of goals. This part of the message is also peppered with uh, talk about the war bubbling overseas, so even though the U.S. is still officially neutral concerning the war, we are already seeing that creep into both the comics and the newspaper strips. This page also sees the return of Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Saturn, number 5, on your Superman of America club decoder. And the message is, if we remember the slogan of our club and make it a part of our daily lives, we can then truly deserve the name of Superman. They're kind of pushing the same message in these club pages, I've noticed. Granted, the club is still in its infancy, and they've been devoting a lot of space lately to the contest, but I'm interested in seeing how they use these pages as we keep going forward. I've read all the comic stories that we're covering, but the bonus features, so to speak, like the Superman of America pages, are largely new to me, so it's been fun exploring those as we go. Anyway, other books out in February 1940 included More Fun Comics number 53, which adds Captain Desmo to its lineup. Captain Desmo was an aviation hero that had previously had a run in Adventure Comics. Radio Squad also returns this issue. I couldn't find an artist credit for this story, but I know it's still written by Jerry Siegel. Detective Comics number 37 had a cover inked by Jerry Robinson, his first work for DC and obviously his first Batman work. 
It also had the last Mark Bailey-drawn Slam Bradley strip. The strip continues, drawn by a new artist, starting next issue. This issue also had the first Cliff Crosby strip by Chad Grothkoff, and sees the return of the Crimson Avenger strip. But with all these new faces, someone had to go, so the title says goodbye to the Cosmo, the Phantom of Disguise strip by Sven Elvin. Cosmo, the Phantom of Disguise, who never really disguised himself. Well, I guess he did a few times. But not as much as you would think from a guy called Cosmo, the Phantom of Disguise. But anyway, we also had Adventure Comics number 48, which sees the debut of The Hour Man, which is a strip by Ken Fitch and Bernard Bailey. The Hour Man is Rex TikTok Tyler, who discovers a vitamin called Miraclo, which grants him superhuman strength and speed for one hour at a time. And Hour Man will go on to have a pretty lengthy run in Adventure Comics, and he'll also be a part of the Justice Society when they debut. And with the Hour Man's debut, there's only three members of the original JSA lineup that are still waiting to appear. So it's really good seeing that team, uh, or at least the characters involved in the team, slowly come together. In this issue of Adventure Comics, Chad Grothkoff also takes over as artist on the Federal Men strip, uh, still written by Jerry Siegel. And this is the final book, edited by Vin Sullivan, his last work of any sort for DC, so... We say a final goodbye to the man that was Superman's first boss. We also had Flash Comics number 4 and All-American Comics number 13, both All-American books, as well as Superman number 4, which Billy and I looked at last episode. And the final book from the company this month was a second issue of More Fun Comics, issue number 54, which had the final King Carter strip by Superman artist Paul Loretta. Also in that issue, Chad Grothkoff takes over as artist on the Radio Squad strip, which is, of course, written by Jerry Siegel. So Chad Grothkoff is getting a lot of work from the Schuster studio, looks like. Outside of DC, Timely Slash Marvel had three books, but nothing really of note that I could tell. However, Fawcett Comics had a pretty major release in Wiz Comics number 2, which featured the first appearance of Ibis the Invincible, Spy Smasher, and... Captain Marvel. This is Billy Batson, star reporter for station WIZZ-TV. He has been picked by the aged wizard Shazam to carry on the wizard's lifelong crusade against crime and the forces of evil. When Billy speaks the wizard's name, Shazam! Billy becomes Captain Marvel, mighty champion, combining the wisdom of Solomon the strength of Hercules, the stamina of Atlas, the power of Zeus, the courage of Achilles, and the speed of Mercury. Billy's twin sister, Mary Batson, has also been granted special power. When she speaks the name... Shazam! Mary Batson becomes Mary Marble. Blending the grace of Selena with the best qualities of other goddesses, whose names combined form the word Shazam. The third member of the mighty trio is their friend, lame newsboy Freddie Freeman, when he speaks the name of his idol, Captain Marvel. Freddie becomes the powerful Captain Marvel Jr. Together, they are the mighty Marvel. 
dedicated to fighting the forces of evil throughout the universe. Captain Marvel Jr. and Mary Marvel won't be introduced for a little under a year and a little under two years, respectively. But in this first Captain Marvel story, we learn of how the young Billy Batson met the old wizard and became Captain Marvel. The world's mightiest man, powerful champion of justice, relentless enemy of evil. This story also has Captain Marvel saving the city from the evil Dr. Savannah and Billy gaining his job at the radio station. Captain Marvel is the only character from this era to seriously challenge Superman in the sales department. Until National eventually sues them out of existence, that is. I don't know how or if I'll be covering the ongoing legal battles between National and Fawcett concerning that. I kind of feel like it needs to be covered on the show. You know, and I know the highlights and lowlights, but at the same time, it's an awful lot of material that just doesn't really have much to do with Superman specifically, so... We'll see. Regardless, Captain Marvel has finally made the scene. Susan! July, 1963. The Marvel Age of Comics was dawning. First came the rise of the Fantastic Four. Then came the Incredible Hulk, followed by the Amazing Spider-Man and the Mighty Thor. But, the Marvel Age was about to give way to the Age of the Atom, and nothing would be the same. Was the world ready for the strangest superheroes of all? The X-Men? On June 3rd, you can go to the movie theater and see the evolution of the X-Men, or you can listen to Xavier's podcast for Gifted Youngsters, an X-Men podcast, and see how it really began. It's the Merry Marvel Mutants, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, the Angel, the Beast, Iceman, and their mentor, Professor Xavier, from the beginning, issue by issue. Every two weeks, join J. David Weider and Michael Bailey as they follow the X-Men saga from the creation to the first class and beyond. Gasp at the tyranny of Magneto, stand in the awe of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, marvel at the mystery of the Vanisher, and cower at the sight of the Submariner. All for the first time, panel by panel. On June 3rd, prepare for the Children of the Atom at xavierspodcast.blogspot.com. Join David Ellis and Amy Morgan as they access 2099 Bitmap. Bi-weekly podcast exploring the world of Marvel 2099 through reviews and discussions. Download 2099 Bitmap at www.tfradio.net. actually read a few of those early Captain Marvel stories. Not as many as I have with Superman or Batman, but a handful. And they are, for the most part, pretty entertaining. They're much more, and I hate to say juvenile, but that's really the only word I'm, I'm coming up with that describes it. But they're, they're more uh, light-hearted, I guess you might say, than the Superman stories of this era. And I know, I know that sounds rather demeaning, but they do seem like they're aimed at a slightly younger readership. 
I keep hoping that one day DC will put out a uh, Chronicle series reprinting the Golden Age Captain Marvel stories like they have with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, but I have not got much faith that that's going to happen anytime soon. Anyway, I want to thank you all for joining me again this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed this story as much as I did. Some of the air got taken out of it, uh, given that we already saw Luthor in two stories last episode. But now Luthor has officially and completely made his debut, and Superman will for sure never be the same. Next time, we will have an episode that I have been looking forward to for a very long time, because next episode, we will be taking our first real look at the Superman radio serial. To help mark the occasion, I will also be joined by a special co-host next episode, and as if those two things weren't enough to whet your appetite, I will also be making an announcement next episode concerning a fairly significant change in the show, so do not miss next episode. I also want to remind you one final time about the show's bi-weekly status. Next episode will be the final catch-up episode, and with the episode after that, we will finally be back on track. As always, I invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com. At the site, you will find links to the show's Facebook and Twitter feeds. Follow the show on one or both sites, and you will get a post on your wall whenever I have new episodes, show-related news, or other fun things to share. The site will also give you links to the show's RSS feed and the iTunes link, both of which you may use to subscribe to the show directly. For you iTunes users, if you have time to leave an iTunes review, I would be very appreciative. If you have questions, comments, or other feedback, you can contact me directly at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. Send me your thoughts, and unless you say not to, I will read them on the show. And finally, don't forget to stop by the Superman homepage at supermanhomepage.com for all the latest and great Superman news, as well as reviews, interviews, rumors, and more Superman information than you can shake a stick at. The show is also proud to be a member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many excellent Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. So be sure to head on over to Superman Podcast Network and check out all the fine shows there. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. These two men should be safe here with you now so they can get a fair trial. 
Who is it, Superman? Lex Luthor. The greatest criminal mind of our time. Of our time? I hereby serve notice. He's serving most of you. That these walls... Here. Will you shut up, please? Now, tell me, be honest. Isn't one of us without the other incomplete, almost unnecessary, or am I all alone here? No, you need me. You wouldn't be much of a hero without a villain. And you do love being a hero, don't you? You rat! Your super breath destroyed my lab and blew the gas fumes at me, causing my hair to fall out. But it was an accident. Don't lie. You were jealous of my genius. Now you'll never have this kryptonite antidote I invented for you. And I will use all of my scientific genius to one day destroy you. You're finished, Superman. Before I'm done, the world will tremble at the name Lex Luthor. The millions of people will die. Millions! Once again, the press underestimates me. Is that how a warped brain like yours gets its kicks? By planning the death of innocent people? No. By causing the death of innocent people. I hold a certain position in the city. Yes. And there is nothing that would please me more than to see you dethroned and behind bars like any common criminal. Ooh, a threat. But this old dog still has a few teeth. right about me all along, Mr. Kent. I am the villain of the story.